This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Let's get right to our guest because there's lots of stuff going on, certainly watching uh, the continued rollout of the vaccine and new developments, certainly when it comes to uh, the virus. Dr. William Hazeltine is back with us, chairman and president of Access Health International. It's a nonprofit think tank on a mission to improve access to high quality and affordable health care for people everywhere. He has founded more than a dozen biotech companies, including Human Genome Sciences. His autobiography released uh, earlier this year, My Lifelong Fight Against Disease from Polio and AIDS to, to uh, COVID-19. And he's also got a book out, I don't know how he finds time to sleep, called Variants, The Shape-Shifting Challenge of COVID-19. He's back with us on the phone in Connecticut. Dr. Hazeltine, good to have you back. How are you? Uh, Carol, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. I just speak the truth. Um, tell me how you're doing and tell me when it comes to COVID headlines, vaccine headlines, what is it that you are constantly kind of looking out for? What's kind of front and center when it comes to the information that continues to flow out on both the virus and the vaccine? Well, first thing to say is we're very fortunate to have great vaccines that are working really effectively. and very safely, especially the mRNA vaccines. They're protecting people really well. Uh, they are as safe as of any vaccine I've ever seen. And uh, we're very fortunate. The biggest question for those is how long will they be protecting us? And how well will they protect us against the variants? And for how long? Today, this morning, we got the first shoe that dropped. And that is that one of the best of all the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, doesn't protect against two of the common variants after about six months very well. Wow. Uh, at least as judged by the ability of the antibodies in people who were vaccinated to neutralize the virus. That's different from a real vaccine test in showing that it's failing to protect people in real uh, life. But it's a pretty good indication that it's not going to protect people for very much longer. So the, the net result is also quite positive. In the very same report, it said, if you get a booster at six months, you're golden again. Hmm. You're maybe better off than you were before. And so it's a, a, a good news, bad news story. Bad news doesn't last that long against the variant. Good news, there's something to, to think. So what I've done is I put in my calendar six months from when I got my last shot. I'm going to get another. Hmm. So, I mean, do you think we'll start to see a recommendation from the CDC soon for that for that booster shot? Uh, CDC has been a little slow in this pandemic, but I think they'll come to that position. And, you know, the first person to mention that was the head of Pfizer. You may remember that. Yeah, just a few weeks ago, Albert Bourla saying that just about the Pfizer shot. And so he, he knew something that we didn't, but now we do from the Moderna publication, which is, Six to eight months out, fewer than half the people are protected against the Brazilian and the South African variant, according to these studies of antibody neutralization. So if we don't pursue a course of booster shots for everyone, mark your calendars kind of thing, right now, could we potentially see another outbreak? 
Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because most of the viruses that are infecting people in the United States, and I should say around the world today, are variants. They're not the original uh, strain. And the reason for that is the variants are more infectious and they displace one. We're now in the fourth wave of increasingly transmissible variants. First wave was what came out of China a year ago, February. It changed and swept the world. Then late summer, early uh, fall, a whole bunch of new variants came and they displaced whatever else was there. And right now, the Indian strain seems to be displacing even the British strain in Britain. So this is a natural course that we're seeing faster than we expected. Um, And it does mean that I I believe we will be seeing recommendations for six-month boosters pretty soon. So does that mean, Dr. Hazeltine, that it's every six months, or is there a chance that Moderna and Pfizer are able to change the formulation somewhat slightly and actually give a shot that has longer-lasting antibodies? Until we get new types of vaccines, and I'm not sure how we're going to do that. There's some ideas on the drawing board. But until we figure out how to make vaccines that are going to last longer, it's probably going to be a minimum of every year and possibly more often. I mean, That's we're, not the worst. we're to the point it's now, though, where it's better to be protected than not. Right. And we're to the point now, though, where where some of the healthcare professionals who got the shot in December would be approaching that six month mark. We only have about 20 seconds left, Dr. Hazeltine. Well, you're correct. Uh, we're approaching the time when it's about time to get. And I should say, if you haven't got those two vaccines, the other ones you may need a little more often. So I think it's time to consider booster shots for the earliest uh, people who are vaccinated. So let's talk about, you wrote a, a, a story um, in, uh, and it talks about this antiviral drug cocktail. So tell us about what this is about and what this might do, especially for a place like India, which is really having a difficult, difficult time right now with COVID-19. Well, there are two ways to prevent uh, infections. One are vaccines, which are by far the most convenient. You get one shot and, and, uh, or two shots, and uh, you may have uh, many months to many years of protection. Or if you're exposed to take a drug cocktail that will prevent you from getting infected uh, for a week or two. Um, let me give you an example of something that happened last year. There's a new drug called Zofluza that was developed by a Japanese company, now sold, uh, I believe, uh, in America by Genentech. Uh, and if you are exposed to flu, your kid comes home from school with the flu, uh, you take that one pill and you're, you have about an 80% chance, uh, you reduce your chance of being infected by 80%. That's what we're talking about, drugs mm-hmm. that you can take uh, when exposed or when you think you may be exposed to prevent you from getting infection. Now, it turns out that the slowpoke in treatment of, uh, and prevention of infection has been drugs but they're rapidly catching up. And just uh, a week ago, there was some very, very interesting news that many of the drugs that are useful for treating hepatitis C, there's seven different drugs used in two drug combinations, work in a very unexpected way against a a protein of the COVID virus called NSP3. And to everyone's surprise, it's powerfully synergistic with another drug called remdesivir. And one in one in this case makes Hmm. not two. And so it's giving us the idea 
there should be a lot of combinations of drugs, which together can be what's called synergistic, the one and one plus equals 10. The great thing about that discovery is India is the powerhouse for manufacturing small drugs and can produce these drugs, which in the United States cost about $80,000 for a three-month treatment, cost maybe $35. In fact, do cost $35 for a three-month treatment. So if you only need them for a few days, it's, you're only talking about a couple of bucks for treatment. So how would this work? Add that, a couple of other drugs, and you're in good shape to help stop this epidemic, not only by getting vaccines, which are in short supply, but by dr- using combinations of drugs. Well, so how would this how would this work in a place like India right now? How would they how would they distribute this quickly, and how would they know who to distribute it to? Or is it safe to assume that the the infection right there is so high that you can assume you've been exposed? Uh, that's probably a pretty good assumption. I don't think there's enough drug right now. First of all, we don't really know what the right, these are pills. This isn't a shot. Remdesivir now has to be infused. And the drug that we now know works best with these uh, hepatitis C drugs. They're pills, but it works best with remdesivir. Mm. There are probably other drugs that are being developed, molnupiravir by Merck and other companies, uh, protease inhibitors by Pfizer and other companies. Uh, it'll take a while, but if I were India, I would do a massive warp speed trial to see what's working. And with so many people infected, you could get that answer in a month or two. So essentially, rather than, rather than some, rather than somebody getting the vaccine, they're given this cocktail tail, what it first signs of it or just in general, no, no, or you're even just exposed, you're exposed. Okay. Like with, with, with Zofluza, you don't have to be infected. You don't want to be infected. Right. So if somebody comes into your household or you're at a workplace or at a school where people are getting the flu, right. you pop this pill, your chance is about 80% decrease that you're going to get it. That's fantastic. And, and I think it's a whole different approach that people, we're going to have a, a, pharma, a big pharmacopoeia of anti-SARS-CoV drugs in about six months to a year. And I think that will be a good supplement. The great thing about those drugs also is resistance to vaccines, resistance to immunity is parallel and like a different world from drug resistance. So you get that maybe the best of both worlds, vaccines plus these drugs to protect yourself against all of these variants. I think a lot of good news is coming down the path. Hey, just quickly, just 20 seconds, though, Dr. Hasseltine, I mean, to be clear that you take this pill and you're good for a couple of weeks, or is it longer than that? Probably not longer at this point. It's taken us 30 years to get shots, which might protect us for eight to nine months from HIV. Okay. Uh, you've got to really be careful with long-term effects for long-acting drugs or people who are entirely healthy. But we can get there. We can get to a shot that will last probably a year or more. But it'll take us some time. But we can get there with the drugs, too. All right. Yep, we've said we've got to have a bunch of tools to do this. Um, Dr. Hazeltine, thank you so much. Always appreciate uh, checking in with you. Dr. William Hazeltine, Chairman and President of Access Health International. What are you thinking? I'm I'm thinking how long are we going to be in this situation, right? Forever. Yeah, it's what it feels like. It feels like, uh, I mean, yeah, Yeah. my, my, my thoughts on it have evolved a lot. But it's interesting, like he's saying that, you know, you have multiple tools because there are probably ultimately yeah. people who will not get vaccines. So how do you treat somebody who all of a sudden says they're exposed? So you want to prevent them from getting it so they get maybe a cocktail. Yeah, it's a right? great point. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. 
So there's a story in the upcoming issue of the magazine. It's out later on this week on newsstands, online on, on the Bloomberg, about how the company that's become the leader in the most advanced types of semiconductors on the market today is, Tim, stuck in the middle of a global panic over chip supply. That company, TSMC. Mm-hmm. Joel Weber is editor at Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us now on the remote from Brooklyn. And Joshua Brustein, technology writer at Bloomberg Business Week, joins us on the phone from New York City. Uh, Joel, I was... I was pretty shocked to read how much Samsung and TSMC, Intel, are spending designing the next generation chip business, given that here we are now in this global supply crunch. Well, billions, and the number, even like the the number that we've seen from from Intel, the uh, twenty billion that they want to throw at the Arizona project, seems uh, paltry when you yeah. compare it to the big numbers that um, the TSMCs of the world throw around. And you know, TSMC is is I think pre chip shortage. There are probably a lot of people who had no idea who that company uh, was. And you know, if you're if you're in the in the tech business. Uh, TSMC has quietly become just a, a juggernaut over the past couple of decades. And so I, I think a lot of people suddenly woke up to the, the realization that this is a huge powerhouse company um, in the midst of the chip shortage. And what the story that Josh edited in, in this, um, this week's issue is about is, is effectively TSMC sort of finds itself in the middle of now a game of geopolitics that looks really complicated. So, so Josh, what did uh, what did our reporters uh, discover as they dug into this story? Yeah, so the TSMC story is is interesting. This is a company, as Joel said, that was really unknown um, outside of tech circles until very recently, and it pioneered a process for making chips where it would allow its customers to design the chips and then it would manufacture them. This is different from companies like Intel who were handling. Um, the entire thing. And this really was a revolution in the chip industry. Um, TSMC's real big break came when it began manufacturing chips that Apple was designing for its iPhones. And that allowed TSMC to really learn how to to make the most sophisticated chips on the market. And that's been a great business for it. It is um, an enormous company. It's very important throughout the global tech industry. And now, with the chip shortage, you're seeing officials really across the globe worrying about um, their supply chains and, in a lot of cases, wanting chips to be manufactured closer to home. The thing with for TSMC is that almost all of its highest-level chips are made in Taiwan, um, and so it's going to be facing increasing pressure from places like the United States and from Europe to, uh, to evolve into something that it never has been. Right. And closely tied, as you as you just said, to Taiwan, which kind of puts it also in China's grasp. And I do wonder how that also kind of complicates things, Joshua. Yeah, I think when, when you're talking about Taiwan and um, and the West looking at Taiwan, I think there's a bit of nervousness that it is very close physically to China, um, that you uh, might be a little bit nervous about your long term prospects of relying on something of strategic importance that happens Mm -hmm. really in China's backyard. Um, And TSMC, you know, it has uh, its own uh, interesting relationship with China. It's also not making its most sophisticated chips in China. Um, And China wants to have its own chip industry as well. So I'm wondering where this leaves the companies that it that it supplies chips to. 
Well, I think that the companies who rely on TSMC for chip manufacturing are probably pretty happy with the way that this works. They get to design the chips. They don't have to build these multi-billion dollar factories where they're made. Um, And, you know, I I think that there's uh, interest in having TSMC continue to do that, but maybe in a way that will make companies and policymakers outside of um, Taiwan or not that close to Taiwan just a little bit more comfortable um, with the prospect of supply shocks. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is interesting about this is that you have a ton of different uh, uh, countries all wanting to throw their weight around, whether it's the U.S. or China or Japan. And and ultimately, you have um, Taiwan here, which is basically, I mean, this is like one of, the, the, basically the, the, the biggest company that uh, Taiwan has. Um, and so, Josh, like, I, one of the things that stuck out to me as I was, uh, you know, thinking about the capital expenditures and... Um, everything else that, you know, the competitors that would want to try and steal back some market share from TSMC are, are wrestling with here is like, ultimately, TSMC is the one with the leverage, right? Like, you, you can't just like spool up one of these factories and do it overnight. Like, you, you have to be thinking decades out here. So to some extent, like, they, they have the cards, right? Absolutely. TSMC has a big head start on most of its competitors when it comes to making the most sophisticated chips, and that's going to give it a lot of leverage. Um, but as you also see, as um, national governments want to throw around money as well, like that is a potential opportunity for TSMC. It's also a potential opportunity for some of its competitors to close the gap, but closing that gap is not going to be easy or even a foregone conclusion that it will happen. Okay, I got one more for you, Josh, which is I thought the, the, the lead of this story was super interesting. Like, to give you a sense of how long TSMC has been around, can you rewind the clock and tell us what we found out? <laughs> yeah, so the, the lead of the story um, starts with Morris Chang, who is TSMC's founder, um, who was born in China, um, but actually spent the early part of his career in the United States. And he recently was reminiscing about a industry conference he went to in 1958 with the founders of Intel, who were not yet the founders of Intel because the company had not yet been founded. But he remembers going to this conference, um, going out and having beers with them, and as he put it, singing arm in arm all the way back to our hotel. Um, so these guys have known each other for a long time, um, and you know, that, that the basic uh, the basic foundation of the chip industry has been around for quite some time. And they felt favored by the gods. And, and Love that. Exactly. as Debbie points out in the piece, Intel passed up a chance to actually invest in the 1980s in TSMC. It's just fascinating. And I feel like we're not quite sure how the chips may fall or lie or whatever. <laughs> I like say. it, Carol. <laughs> uh, going forward. Um, great, great reporting. Debbie Wu, of course, the reporter who did this story for Bloomberg Business Week. Joshua Brustein, though, tech uh, editor at Business Week, uh, giving us the details along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. And in this week's Business Week, Small Business Survival Guide, cash is king once again at small business. Uh, who'd have thought, right? Because it's like, Tim been all in when it comes to digital. Yeah, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when nobody would touch cash. Uh, Rob Mandelbaum is freelance contributor at Bloomberg Business Week and joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. Rob, this is something I run into because I do drive. So I go and I fill up my car in Brooklyn and it's always like 10 or 12 or 15 cents cheaper per gallon. So I, I 
here's something about me. I fill up with cash all the time because I don't want to pay that extra fee. Uh, but as you report in uh, Bloomberg Business Week, this is starting to spread uh, to other types of stores as custom as uh, businesses tire of those swipe fees, which add up to a lot of money. They certainly do. Um, businesses have complained about swipe fees for decades, and you know, credit cards, as you mentioned, are just becoming more and more. Uh, the currency of the moment. I talked to one restaurant, you know, 98% of its sales were credit card sales. So those swipe fees really add up for, for places like that. Yeah, in 2019, swipe fees for credit card transactions, you report, amounted to $93 billion in the U.S., or 2.2% of credit card sales. So, so how is this playing out uh, at mom-and-pop stores throughout Brooklyn? Um, well, throughout Brooklyn and, and throughout the rest of the country, um, there are payment processors. These are the people who sort of connect the merchant to the banks that sort of handle credit card transactions. Uh, payment processors uh, are approaching merchants sometimes and saying, we have a way uh, to lower your fees to zero, um, and we do that by making the customer pay them. <laughs> That can be very difficult, though, if you're a business and you're, 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 you don't necessarily want to be the one uh, who's necessarily charging more for something um, because well, you want to provide the customer with the cheapest price. It, it depends, right? It, you know, if you're a restaurant that it provides a particular, you know, a, a particular experience or a particular kind of food, you know, people who go to restaurants because they like the food uh, might be willing to, go to, to pay that extra 4%. Um, you know, if you're the only fish merchant, you know, in walking distance, people might uh, suck it up and, and pay credit cards. Most people do, in fact, uh, just absorb the fee. So how important, first of all, is small business to all of these credit cards? Oh, uh, not very important, Carol. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they would, they would disagree, of course. Uh, don't forget, shop small on Saturday. But... Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, the, the vast majority of, of credit card transactions take place at giant retailers, you know, at, at the Costco's, the Walmart's, the Sephora's, you know, the Target. Right. No I mean, love lost between credit cards and small business. What's interesting, too, and I didn't know, and in your story you talk about, you know, we get those cards that give us rewards and cash back and travel points, and merchants are the ones that ultimately are paying for those benefits for consumers. That's right. That's right. And they're much more expensive for merchants than other cards. You know, it, it could be the difference between paying a 2% transaction fee and paying a 4% transaction fee or 45 or 5%. So uh, do customers seem okay with the way this is going? Uh, the, the, uh, according to the merchants, the credit card companies will tell you something different. Right. Uh, according to the merchants, Tim, um, yes, uh, customers understand. And they understand that they're paying for the convenience paying for credit cards. Uh, a couple of the merchants told me that they had uh, took criticism from customers at the very beginning, uh, but that they quickly sort of came around. To so I, I wonder if this leads to some sort of resurgence in cash. I mean, it, I, I got to tell you, it, it actually has for me now that I'm driving and I'm filling up my car, like I'm, I'm making sure that when I go to the gas cash. station, I actually have cash. Um, but for so long, the story has been that, you know, with the rise of fintech companies and Venmo and credit cards becoming ubiquitous with Square, cash was going to die. Um, the restaurants and stores, because there were both restaurants and stores that I talked to, 
did not see an appreciable uptick in cash transactions. They saw some saw some uptick in cash transactions, but by and large, um, you know, credit cards held their ground even even with the fees. So I think what it sounds uh, like is I'm cheaper than everybody else. I'm sorry, say that again. <laughs> I'm cheaper than everybody else. Like I will, right. I don't want to pay for the convenience. I want oh, to get the cheapest price. Well, you're not cheaper than me, Tim. Okay, because uh, I'm the same. <laughs> I'm the same way. Finally, a man after my own heart. But I appreciate I, it. But I think about it too when it comes to tipping and things like that, yeah. right? Because percentages are taken out. So, like, I do try to have a little bit of cash. Um, That's an excellent point. Right? Because because yeah. an individual or a server gets less because the credit cards take their fees. Correct? Right? Uh, you know, to be honest, I don't know if restaurants uh, take it out. Uh, t- take take that out, but it wouldn't surprise me if they did for sure. Yeah. Anyway, it's interesting, and listen, we're still finding our way through when it comes to the impact of the pandemic. What's lasting? All I know is I have gone digital big time when it comes to payment with everything. Yeah, especially with the tap 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 to pay with you know, credit cards with phones. There was e- even someone. My daughter was telling me a story about someone who was asking for money in the streets, and they're like, somebody said, well, I don't have any cash, and they're like, well, I've got Venmo. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> so because all you need is a smartphone and a bank account. Exactly. Um, interesting story. Rob, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, Rob Mandelbaum, he is Bloomberg Business Week contributor on the phone in New Jersey. Check out that story uh, in the magazine and all of the coverage when it comes to small business and the survival guide. You can find more at Bloomberg.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. So, Tim, this was a story I think you covered on Quick Take today as well uh, about how Uber and Lyft are losing the race when it comes to the electric future. Yeah, Lizette Chapman is Bloomberg News technology reporter. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Uh, she and our colleague Ben Elgin have this deep dive into Uber and Lyft, what they're doing or what they're not doing, I should say, in order mm. to help their drivers here in the U.S. actually get toward that sustainable future. Uh, Lizette, thanks for joining us uh, on this. First of all, lay out Uber and Lyft's climate goals and, and what they're actually trying to achieve. Uh, this decade? Sure thing. So um, earlier this summer, after years and years of pressure from different environmental groups and just increasing academic research showing their impact on the climate with their with this, you know, what was supposed to be the future of transportation, Uber, well, first Lyft, and then Uber, both committed to being 100% electric on the platform in the United States by 2030. So that was the pledge they made. So Ben and I decided to dig in and take a look and see how those efforts were going. So how are they going? (laughs) Not so great. Um, You know, it it is a long process and it involves a lot of different shareholders, obviously policy makers, auto manufacturers, and of course the infrastructure with, you know, to support the charging stations so that these drivers can, um, you know, continue to do their job and not waste, you know, time that they would take to charge. But the net net of this is that they've made this pledge um, to be 100% electric. And right now, um, the percentage is 0.5% of ride-hailing companies are now electric vehicles here in the United States. And um, that's less than the 0.7% of overall in the United States passenger cars. So basically, we're going to have to see adoption outpace the general population by about 10x in order to, for them to hit these 2030 goals. And it's pretty expensive to to still purchase these vehicles. Right. Um, you know, there's still thousands of dollars more, even after lower, you know, plummeting battery costs and government rebates and all this. So, you know, um, Uber has set up some programs to try to help 
drivers by offering incentives. Lyft is offering no financial incentives. Um, but, you know, in this article, we take a look at different ways that they're approaching it. And, you know, our, our conclusion was that uh, the efforts so far have been tentative, incomplete, and sloppily executed. Well, let's let's take us take us through some numbers here, Lizette, because your your story opens with an anecdote about uh, somebody named uh, Kurt Kinder and his Chevy Bolt. Um, he only spends about five dollars per day on electricity to to charge his car. As you point out, the thirteen dollar difference amounts to over thir- the three thirteen dollar difference amounts to over three thousand dollars per year, and that is money that yeah. he gets to keep. So, the so num- five dollars with an EV versus eighteen is exactly. what he would charge in gas. Exactly right. what he would charge for gas, and plus it doesn't right. even take into account the maintenance costs that are associated with internal combustion vehicles, which are more, uh, in some cases, than EVs. So, so what what is the economic? Is the, is it just the initial outlay that's so expensive? Yep, that's it, Tim. It's just still thousands of dollars more to purchase these EVs than it is for a gas car, and so a lot of these. Drivers, you know, if, if it is a part-time job or they're only doing it a couple of hours a week just to and from, you know, their, um, you know, their, their jobs or as a side hustle or something like that, um, sometimes they can afford it. We talked to a number of Tesla drivers. I talked to a gentleman here in, in, in Oakland who had a Tesla and was driving um, for, for Uber, um, but he got frustrated after a while mm. because he wasn't getting any of the bonuses that he had been promised. And that Uber had said that, you know, they would give $1 bonuses for every single electric vehicle trip that one of their drivers made. This is ostensibly to help them make the transition, to encourage them to do it. Um, But the upshot was that when we started, you know, doing some reporting and and talking to electric vehicle drivers, um, you know, a large number of the ones that we spoke to had never gotten these bonuses. So we gave gave that list to Uber and they checked into it and found that a technical glitch had occurred. Uh, they apologized and they immediately made the, the payment and the rec, you know, retroactively as well as a 10% bonus. And then, you know, we kept reporting and then we found, hey, you know, some of these drivers aren't, still aren't getting the bonus. They got the first bonus, but not the second one. And so we called them again and, and you know, and then they, they made, it, made it good with them there. So it's, it's been tricky and there has been a pattern of that also in, um, with a Sacramento pilot program mm. plan that they had. Uh, where drivers um, didn't, you know, had a hard time signing up and then oftentimes never collected these bonuses, which during that time back in 2018 was $2. And then also in London as well, they just recently cut how much they were giving riders, uh, drivers there under this um, clean air plan. Hey, Lizette, only got about 30 seconds left here, though. Ultimately, though, won't Uber and Lyft have to figure out a way to get more EV vehicles in their fleet because of carbon emissions and controls and concerns and more regulation and just real quickly yeah um there is definitely pressure but it's state by state here you know california has its clean mile standard that's coming into effect um you know to to push them to do that by 2030 um but you you know it's so far this is this is Mm. voluntary so and it's going to take it's going to take more like in China real quickly. I know running out of time, but in China, Didi, they're at 20 percent. But they mm. also have the support of the Chinese government, right. of automakers and the like. And Ola is nowhere near its goal. Cabify um, as well. Right. And Grab has in, in Southeast Asia doesn't have any goals. All right. Good yep. stuff. Everything Lizette does has so much information. Go to Bloomberg.com and read the story because it's so good. Lizette Chapman, uh, of course, tech reporter here at Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, so just about 10 and a half minutes left in today's trading session. We've been bouncing around, no doubt about it uh, today, definitely off our lows of the session, particularly with the NASDAQ, which, Tim, as you mentioned, actually squeezing out a little bit of a gain was in the green just for a moment, uh, now just down about one-tenth of one percent, but nonetheless uh, a volatile day. And who knows exactly why, because there's been a lot of reasons thrown out there. Yeah, it's been a wild day. I mean, the NASDAQ <laughs> was down more than two percent. Yeah. Pretty significant. All right, let's see what our next guest has to say. Barry James is back with us. He's president, CEO, and portfolio manager at James Investment Research on the phone from Alpha, Ohio. Barry, nice to have you back here on Bloomberg. So how do you explain the day? I've seen inflation concerns initially for the sell-off. I've seen profit-taking, which is something that we feel like is often a throwaway <laughs> explanation. How do you see it? Well, that's a great question, Carol. And, uh, you know, the answer is always that the uh, sellers are more anxious than the buyers. But uh, <laughs> True. Um, as we, it, if we look at last week, uh, you know, the, the oil, the energy sector was up almost 9%. So uh, that we would see some, some bit of a pullback, especially with all the, uh, you know, the, the hullabaloo about, uh, you know, long lines and things of that nature and the disruption within that, that whole sector. So I think that's probably, you know, what is, is, is sparking this. But underneath it, there are, you know, some warning signs that we've seen. Mm. Not that I think these are long-term, but the warning signs are, number one, the insiders are selling, and the companies themselves are selling their, their shares actively. Uh, so those are two, two groups that tend to be right, and they're saying, uh, we're going to take a we're going to take." But a give us some right examples now. of that. Like, well, who, who are you seeing selling right now? Yeah. Not necessarily in, insiders and or companies. Well, the, the list is really, really long. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen some where the new issuance is, is you know, at, at just about record levels, per se. And, um, you know, it's just all up and down throughout the, throughout the stream of, uh, of insiders uh, selling. So I, I don't have a specific name uh, to, to throw out there, but it's just I'm looking at the cumulative effect, and uh, it's, it's pretty telling. It's much, much higher than normal. Well, and what's interesting, though, is we also, at the same time, we came, came off earnings and we saw some, you know, big buyback programs announced at the same time. You know, we just saw Amazon do a huge debt offering of $18.5 billion, and some of the expectation is that they're going to use it to buy back shares. Um, so it's interesting that that's happening at the same time. But you're, is, are insiders selling because of tax reasons? Uh, I, that's certainly part of it. Okay. Um, I've had clients that have last year said, Get me out of all my gains. <laughs> I don't want to go into this new year with with any gains. Uh, so anyway, yes, that is that is part of it. But you know, they've seen this huge run, uh, especially in uh, you know some of the names that that weren't so popular for some time. Some of the smaller names, some of the more cyclical names, and the like. And so, uh, yeah, that would be be normal to to take take some off the the table. And you know, the kind of growth we're seeing in the economy right now. Uh, obviously driving earnings and, you know, been driving uh, stock prices. And it may be a little bit ahead of itself. We don't think it's a permanent thing, but we need a little bit of a cooling off period. Hey, Barry, are there any bearish economic indicators that you're, that you're seeing right now? I mean, any, anything that concerns you? Yeah. Um, the, um, 
producer prices and uh, as you as you just mentioned you know the commodity prices are are way up um, you know we have oil up uh, you've got the metals are way up uh, you've got agriculture way up so all of these things are laying the groundwork uh, to pressure on companies and their earnings uh, the CPI, you know, hasn't been going up at the same pace as the PPI, and that's uh, that makes it uh, a lot tougher for for companies to pass on their costs. So that that is one one piece of the puzzle that that we're concerned about. Mm. Um, we're also, as as we look at, uh, you know, the possibility of of inflation uh, kicking in and the lack of uh, personnel, if you will. Um, Hardy's locally one worker, and that was the manager. One worker. Isn't that just a matter of time before that kind of corrects itself? And whether it's, we were just talking about it earlier with Carl Riccadonna, whether some workers are staying home because of stimulus payments. He reminded us that only 60% of school districts have actually opened. So there are a lot of parents that are still struggling with, you know, schooling their kids at home and it's hard for them to get maybe back to work. I mean, there's a lot of factors at play right now, but ultimately that will correct itself i i agree um you know the, the the free market if it doesn't get interfered with too much will will balance things out it's not necessarily pretty but yes it'll get there and uh people will probably be making more money <laughs> well, in the, uh, you know, well, well let's talk about that because you actually there are some names that yet you um do like at this point and let's talk about the mass tech is one mtz is the ticker it's been on quite a run uh up about 72 percent here on infrastructure play communications utility infrastructure they work on uh wind and solar farms uh it also i think hit a record in yesterday's trade i have to check today if it hit another record uh you like this one you would commit new money to it yeah yeah um i mean you can only sell the top once right so <laughs> anyways <laughs> Um, forgive that joke. It's it's in the field that is is going to be dominant for quite some time, and they are really really good at what they do. Their 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 sales growth uh, against the competitors, cash flow margin, all those sorts of things versus competitors are very very strong. So uh, they've got the financial side of it in in good shape. They have you know low leverage uh, on a historical basis, and they're right in the sweet spot. You know even with five G. So uh, we. I, I've got no problem buying it, buying it at a new high. Okay, what about LGI Homes? Uh, market cap of uh, over four billion dollars, uh, and it targets first-time home buyers in Texas, Arizona, Florida, and Georgia. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, this is small. <laughs> Don't want to give anybody the impression this is one of the big guys, but um, the the low uh, interest rates uh, is is a major tailwind. Uh, you know, homes in that starter area. Uh, you can't find them. There's no inventory, hmm. and people are wanting to get out on their own. I think this whole COVID thing has has got people thinking, "I want my own place, and I don't want to be in you know in an apartment or anything." So um, that is, I think, very supportive of of what they do. Uh, they've got great margins, and what's important with the prices of uh, you know the commodities going up, they seem to have the ability to pass on those costs fairly easily. Uh, so they they shouldn't get caught in a trap of uh, you know. Um, being paying up to to get the goods without being able to pass that along. And again, this is one that's been on quite a tear. I think it's up something like uh, sixty, uh, almost sixty three percent so far this year. You don't have a problem. Uh, you think this one can can move even higher? Well, yeah, but this if we do get this little pause that refreshes, these types of companies will will uh, pause the mass tax. 
the LGIs. We have these in our uh, our balanced gold and rainbow fund, uh, and uh, you know, if if we see a, a pullback, we'd probably be buying buying more in those particular positions. Well, LG um, I Homes is down about five percent. So, would you be buying into it today, potentially? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it's uh, the case where you have to to, to step up whenever mm-hmm. the opportunity arises. You can't just uh, you know wish and hope that you know buying on any given day got to move when the opportunity strikes all right we're going to leave it on that note barry thank you so much barry james president ceo and portfolio manager james investment research on the phone from alpha ohio thanks for listening to bloomberg business week download the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com and you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m eastern on bloomberg radio or watch us on youtube search bloomberg global news